Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, grace and peace to you. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Tell you what, I've been here at Christ Church for about four months now, and I gotta tell you, I love this church. Love being a part of this church. Do you love being a part of this church? Man, this is exciting. It feels like family. I like it. Now, I love this church so much, and you love it so much, we got an opportunity in front of us. When you came in today, you should have received a couple different cards. They look like this. Great job by our team on creating these. These are called Invest and Invite Cards. Invest and Invite Cards. Let me tell you how this works. You're in relationship with a variety of people your neighbors, the people in your workplace, the people in your community, the people you see out and about in restaurants and shops. And as you have conversations, as you invest in a relationship in people, we encourage you to invite them to be a part of the life of the family of this church here, Christ Church of Grove Farm. You got a great opportunity for this. Coming up in April, we have Easter Sunday. It would be a wonderful time for you to invite someone to be a part of the church. So these are invest and invite. Just don't go put this under someone's windshield wiper in the parking lot. That's annoying, and you know it is. Instead, invest in someone. Get to know someone, perhaps someone you already know well, and invite them to be a part of the life of this church. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, yes, including us in the family of God. It is a wonderful thing, Lord, to be a part of of your church, your family. And Lord, we're mindful that it's a church, it's a family that stretches beyond just what's happening here this morning. We're mindful that, for instance, our brother John, Pastor John, is in Birmingham, Alabama, preaching the gospel this morning. Would you strengthen him, Lord? Would you give him authority from your Holy Spirit that he might preach your gospel and people would respond? Lord, we're mindful that we have brothers and sisters a part of our church. They're on their way to Uganda right now to be a part of your work there to fellowship with the believers in Uganda and Africa. Would you, Lord, be with them and strengthen them? And Lord, as we turn our attention to what's happening here in this place, we want to be mindful, Lord, of of who you are and what you're doing in our midst. Lord, teach us from the Bible. I pray, Lord, that this passage from the Gospel of Luke would, would prick our hearts in such a way that we leave here, Lord, changed, challenged, transformed, all because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so glad you're here today. Uh, We are in the second Sunday of Lent, and the series is called Do This in Remembrance of Me. Of course, these are the words of Jesus, and we're looking in our series at the me part of this. Me meaning Jesus. We're looking at this person seeking to be transformed by him during the season of Lent, leaning into Jesus. So we can experience him in fresh ways. We talked about fasting last week and Jesus in the wilderness. And this week we're going to look at this passage that was just read to you by Pastor Robbie from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Now I would suggest that this is one of the most moving passages in all the New Testament. 
It's a beautiful story. It's powerful. And so what I would ask you to do, a little bit different than what I typically do up here, I would ask you this morning, open your Bible, please, or find the, the, the passage printed in your service sheet or on your phone, and just set it in your hands, put it in your lap. And, and perhaps as we teach through this right now, as we, as we engage in this, in this passage together, you could be glancing down at it, reading this passage as I go through and show you a few things from the Scriptures. And my hope is this, that as you open the Bible, that you also open your hearts. You open your hearts and your minds. And through the power of God, we will all grow in His grace and the knowledge of His salvation together. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to look at this passage through three distinct lenses. The first lens is we're going to look at the characters, the people as a part of the story. Then we're going to look at the themes. The themes that are represented in this passage, we'll talk about that. And then finally, we are going to talk about the purpose of this passage. So let's dig into it right away. Let's talk about the characters. Now, of course, these are real people. We call them characters because they're a part of a story that we've read this morning here. The first character, of course, to talk about is the person of Jesus. And Jesus in this passage is depicted as the wise teacher. We see Jesus as the person who's just dropping wisdom in this setting, in this kitchen table room, where he is sharing this parable, challenging the audience who's listening to him. He is depicted as the wise teacher. Not only that, Jesus is depicted also as all-knowing. All-knowing. I want to take you to the passage. Look at Luke 7 with me. Read verses 39 and 40 right now, just two verses. Listen to this and see what it says about Jesus being all-knowing. Scripture says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, the Pharisee, said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, time out. Did you catch that this guy said this to himself, right? And you, you do that, you talk to yourself kind of in your mind, you think things, and it says Jesus answered him. This can only mean one thing. Jesus can read thought bubbles. You know in the cartoons? That should be scary for some of us. Actually, hopefully it's comforting because the truth is Jesus can read thought bubbles. He is all-knowing. And Jesus knows the troubles of your heart, even right now. He knows, he knows the challenges that you're facing. Jesus knows the temptation that you're under. Jesus knows. He's all-knowing. He reads thought bubbles. Okay, so that's another thing we see about Jesus. And then we finally know this. Jesus is gaining a reputation, a great teacher, a powerful teacher, a man of miracles, a person who's gathering large crowds. And so he's a person of interest in this story, of course. We're going to hear a little bit about how this all came to pass. But Jesus is there reclining at the table. And by the way, this was probably a U-shaped table in this culture that was very low to the ground. And the way that people would approach this table is that they would actually lie on their sides. I might try this tonight. They would lie on their sides at the table, one arm under them, another arm to eat, their feet trailing behind them. Their sandals would be taken off. Hence, Jesus' feet are ready for action 
which we read about in the passage, and we will also talk about more. Jesus is at the table. He is one of the main people, figures, of course, the most prominent figure. But then also you have this guy, Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, probably a wealthy man. Most of the Pharisees were people of wealth, people of means. He had the means to invite these people to his home. And, and Simon was a part of this group, obviously, called the Pharisees. Now, if you've read the Bible, if you've read the New Testament at all, you've no doubt come across these characters known as the Pharisees. And we tend to think of them as the villains of the Gospels, that they're kind of the bad guys. Well, it's a little deeper than that. The Pharisees were radical thinkers of their day. They were thinking differently about Judaism. Specifically, they, they knew the Jewish laws. They observed the Jewish laws, and they added many additional requirements and restrictions to the law. This is one of the points of tension between the Pharisees and Jesus all the time. These were people who were, were extra holy in their own minds, extra religious. And so this guy, Simon the Pharisee, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He seems to be zealous to know Jesus. He wants to, he wants to check Jesus out. And so he invites him to his home. And, and I'm thinking that he wants to know, is Jesus really a prophet? Is, is Jesus really someone to be trusted? Is he a holy man? Should his message be believed? Simon was probably wondering, is he a threat? Is he somehow a threat to what's happening in the, in the Jewish tradition? So he was very curious. And, and Simon, I would suggest to you, came to some logical conclusions. Some logical conclusions. A lot of us do this. Perhaps you're wired this way. Or maybe you, you don't believe in God. You've struggled with faith. Because of logic. I believe that Simon was approaching Jesus with logic. You see it reflected in the passage. For instance, he, he sees Jesus with this woman. And he thinks to himself, okay, Jesus does not know that this woman's a sinner, obviously. So therefore, Jesus cannot be a prophet. That's what Simon's thinking, very logically about it. Or, or perhaps maybe he was looking at it this way. That, that Jesus um, was contaminated by this woman. That she touched Jesus, therefore Jesus was contaminated by this woman, therefore Jesus couldn't be holy. You see the logic? I believe that a lot of modern listeners, perhaps some of you in the audience today, or maybe some of you who are watching online, you tend to think about God, you think about Jesus, and you think about it with a logical mind. Well, the problem for Simon was that there was a flaw in his premise. His premise was that, that in order for holiness to come to a person, that that was primar primarily a matter of separation. That separating oneself from sinners and sinful things is what made a person holy. Let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus is a person who, who is himself is holy, and whatever he touches becomes holy because he is holy. It was a flawed premise that, that Simon, in his logic, was clinging to. So Simon is approaching all this with a logical mind, a skeptic's mind, perhaps, because of his position as a Pharisee. You have Jesus, you have Simon, and then we have someone who's known simply as a sinful woman. Did you notice that her name is not mentioned in the passage? We only know her as, as this, a sinful woman. Now, some people have speculated that maybe this is Mary Magdalene. 
Well, there's no evidence to support that. Others have thought, well, maybe this is the other woman that we read about in the other Gospels who, who anoints Jesus as well. Maybe this is the same story. And actually, we believe that this is unique to Luke. It's not Mary of Bethany either. And I love that, that Luke didn't include her name. I, I believe that that's a gracious act by him. I believe that he did that purposely. He left her name out to protect her in a way. What a gracious, loving thing for him to do. Now, this woman, who's known as sinful, doesn't belong in this setting. She doesn't belong. You ever hear of wedding crashers? This woman was perhaps the original wedding party crasher. She came into this place, and she was not invited. But the way that this worked back in the day in ancient times was this. If a rabbi was coming to someone's house for a meal such as this, that people would be welcome to come into the house openly. Anyone could come in. If you wanted to come in and, and hear the pearls of wisdom being taught by the rabbi, well, then you could find yourself a place around the perimeter of the room, and you can listen in like a fly on the wall. Isn't that interesting? But she didn't belong. She wasn't invited, but she showed up early. Another thing to know about the sinful woman is this. The sinful woman was, oh boy, getting, getting exciting up here. The sinful woman was inappropriate. She was inappropriate. You know, we believe that this woman most likely was a prostitute. And there are reasons, if you, if you look at the ancient history, as to why women fell into prostitution, much like today. And, and there are a variety of factors. It could have been that this woman who fell into prostitution was in that place because she had grown up as an illegitimate child and therefore had no prospects of marriage. Or perhaps she fell into to prostitution because she was a widow. And she was just struggling to make ends meet. That could be a reason why she fell into this. Or, or maybe, and, and maybe perhaps the worst case, she was sexually abused as a child. We're not sure why. But this woman found herself in prostitution, and everyone in the room knew it. She was an object of scorn. She was the kind of person that was spat upon when she walked down the road. She was the kind of woman that was used as an example by mothers to say, don't grow up to be like that. They warned their daughters when they pointed to this woman. She was the kind of woman who was the brunt of nasty jokes. She was, she was shunned by all of the best people. She was used and abused by the worst people. This was her life. This was, this was her story. And then you have her actions. I mean, what does she do? She, she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She lets down her hair. This would have been a scandalous thing in these times and in this culture. She lets down her hair and uses it as a towel to wash Jesus' feet, to dry them. And then she anoints him with scented olive oil all while this supper is going on. It would be like me coming up here and getting a pedicure and a shoulder massage while I'm teaching you. That would be inappropriate, wouldn't it? Think of the comment cards we would get. <laughs> Lots of comments. Some of you would walk out of here. That's what this was like. This was not something that was just a part of the culture. No. This was inappropriate on her part. And everyone there in the room also would have thought this to be inappropriate. So there you have the players, the characters. 
We have Jesus, of course. We have Simon the Pharisee. And then we have the sinful woman. Now let's talk about the themes. And I would encourage you, whenever you read the scriptures, read them and understand that there are many lessons present for us. There are themes that we can see in the scriptures, and it seems like they're almost unsearchable. That, that you can't ever quench your ability to find new themes, new lessons inherent in the words of the scriptures. That's why we say that the word of God is like a two-edged sword. It's a, it's a living word. And so there are themes, there are lessons. I'm just going to point out a couple to you. You know, quickly, I'll point out this first one. Um, one of the themes we see represented with the woman and her interaction with Jesus is the theme of worship. The theme of worship. You know, we could see this as she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints him with oil. Here's the first thing I would tell you that we can see about the theme of worship with the woman is that her worship was wordless. We, we tend to, I mean, here she was. She, there's not a word spoken. Not only is her name not mentioned, she doesn't speak a word in this passage from what we know. Wordless. And yet, this extravagant love poured out on Jesus. We tend to think of worship as singing, and we love that. Don't we have a wonderful worship band that leads us? I mean, they're just incredible. Give them a round of applause. We should thank them. And that is a wonderful, valid way to worship God. You might think of worship as, as standing up like I do and teaching or, or proclaiming something and saying something out of your mouth. Listen, worship can be powerful when it's wordless, without words. Hopefully this is freeing to you. Because then it means that you don't just have to gather here for worship. You can worship in the workplace. You can worship in your, in your neighborhood. You can worship in your home. You can worship while you do other things. Worship can be wordless. In fact, the best worship may be wordless. Powerful example by this woman. Here's another thing we see about worship. We see that uh, worship is, is, is the, it's reflected as giving is greater than receiving when it comes to worship. Giving is greater than receiving. You see, this woman comes to Jesus, and she, she gives praise and adulation alone. She adores Jesus for who she is. There's no request here. So often when we come into worship, we come into worship thinking, okay, perhaps this will make me blessable. Perhaps this can make me right with God. Maybe if I show up at church today, God will bless me in some way. I need, I need something, I need healing, I need prosperity. I want blessing. And so we sing or, or we engage in worship. We talked about utilitarianism last week. This idea that somehow we approach God with the intent of using him for our own purposes. This woman shows us the antithesis of that. We find her purely in giving mode, purely there just to adore Jesus, just to be in his presence. You might say this, the highest aspiration of worship is to be in the Lord's presence. Simply to rest in the presence of Jesus. That may be the highest aspiration of worship. And then finally with worship, we see this in the theme of worship in this passage. We could list a lot more but we see that she is preoccupied. She's preoccupied. And, and what is it she's preoccupied with? She is preoccupied, not with a thing, but with a person. And the person is Jesus. 
Think about all the distractions around her. I mean, there are people who are talking about her as she pours out her tears, as she anoints with oil, as she rests at the feet of Jesus. There's a meal happening around here. There's so many distractions. And yet, this woman is focused primarily on the person of Jesus. She is at his feet. At his feet. Worshiping him. It's a powerful picture. And so we could say this about worship. The proper position for worship is at the feet of Jesus. Now recognize that what I just said is very impractical. So let me make it practical for you. This is everything to do with humility. This is everything to do with focusing your mind's attention, your heart's affection on Jesus with your wordless worship. However you might worship God and focusing on him. Listen, worship is, is the way of life for us. This is an important theme. We see this theme of worship. But there's another very important theme that emerges in this passage, and it's this. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. We see self-righteousness reflected in the person of, of Simon the Pharisee. You know, the first thing we could say about self-righteousness in this passage is that um, Simon passes judgment. You see that reflected in the passage? Simon passes judgment. He passes judgment on the woman. In fact, Jesus read his thought bubble. He passes judgment on the woman. Simon passes judgment on Jesus. Simon passes judgment on God himself. Do you find yourself, do you find people in our culture doing that? Well, if God really cared about me, why would he allow this to happen to me? Passing judgment on God. How, how can God be good if he's allowing all these things to happen in the world? We're tempted to pass judgment on God. This is a mark of, of a person who is self-righteous. To pass judgment on God. You know, Simon uh, thought that his house would be more righteous by keeping sinners out of it. So he passed judgment. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we think of the church this way. The church instead should be marked with compassion. Where's the compassion? I mean, look at this passage. Where's the compassion of the Pharisees? If you were to look at the Old Testament, look at the Old Testament prophecies, and see the prophecies that speak of compassion and calling God's people to be a people who are compassionate and loving and full of grace, you'd find it to be almost overwhelming. Yet, when we read about the Pharisees, which Simon's a part of this group, never once in all the quotations of Scripture they give us in the Gospel readings do we hear them speak a prophecy or recite a prophecy about compassion. Where's the compassion? Simon saw this woman, and all he saw was a sinful woman. All he saw was a sinner. You know, she had a backstory. She had a backstory. And, and in her backstory, there was misery, there was shame, there was grief. Yes, there was sin. There were all those things. And rather than be compassionate, Simon felt himself being drawn towards the, the idea of being a person who is judging, judgmental. Look, you've got a backstory. You've got a back. There's a story of your life. And some of you have endured pain. You've lost loved ones. Some of you have experienced great loss. 
Some of you have brought pain upon yourself through the sin you've been a part of in your life. Jesus, thankfully, isn't like the Pharisees. He looks at us with compassion. And I really believe this. This is a statement for the church. I really believe that the church should be a perfect place for imperfect people. The church should be a, a landing spot for people who are, who are in misery, who are experiencing grief, people who are, are fe- facing shame, people who have sinned. It should be a landing spot for them, a perfect place for imperfect people. This is what we see reflected in Jesus Christ as we read this passage. Now, you might hear all this and wonder, well, how do I know if I'm someone who's passing judgment or lacking compassion or someone who's self-righteous? How do I know? Well, one of the reasons you might know is that if you don't think, as you listen to me talk about this, that you're self-righteous, that might mean it's you. You're the person, perhaps, if it's going over your head. I'll give you five markers. I'll give you five markers, okay? Before I give you those markers, I want to tell you this, though. There's a, there's a famous quote by Charles Spurgeon speaking about self-righteousness. This is the great British minister of the 1800s. And Spurgeon says this. He says, we are all born legalist we're all born legalist people who like to work according to the law what's that mean he means that we're born believing that somehow we can earn and deserve heaven this is the default mode of the human heart we're born believing hey i can earn i can earn god's good grace i could earn my place in eternity that's the default mood mode of the human heart we're born resisting the idea of grace. You know why we resist the idea of grace? Because in order to embrace the beauty of grace, we have to come face to face with the ugliness of sin in our own lives. The church should be a perfect place for imperfect people. Here are five markers of the self-righteous. I challenge you, look at these in your own life. To what degree are these, are these truths reflected in you. I have to look at myself with this. Here's the first one. The self-righteous know what to say, but do not do what they say. It's the first marker of a self-righteous person like Simon in our story. They know what to say, all the right things, but they don't always do what they say. Fresh example of this yesterday, beautiful day, right? We're starting to see the evidence of spring, which is a great thing, and uh, I go up into the house, and I see that one of my daughters is napping in the middle of the afternoon in her room, asleep. I'm thinking to myself, oh, come on, don't be, you know, I don't want a lazy kid, right? What is she doing? She needs to get up and do something. She needs to be productive. She needs to go outside. She needs to go ride a bike. She needs to go run. Or, Let's go play ball. Let's do something. And, I, and so I got really kind of incensed about this and was about to walk in her door and knock on the door and say, get up, do something with your life, you know? And something reminded me that I love to take naps on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> and so I like pulled away from the door because you know what? I, I don't want to live as a self-righteous person. Thank God for the grace of reminding me of that. So Pharisees, they, they know, the self-righteous, they know what to say. But they don't always do what they say. How about this? Self-righteous. They, the self-righteous practice their faith to be seen by others. 
I want to be presented. I want people to believe that I'm a religious person. I want people to think that I'm, I'm a person of great wisdom and great faith. This is what the self-righteous do. Here's another one. The self-righteous cover sin instead of confessing and repenting. They want to whitewash the exterior. Those of us who struggle with being self-righteous, we want to cover things up. We don't want to come clean. We want people to think we've got it all together. That's what the self-righteous do. Here's another one. The self-righteous lack love for people in need. There's no compassion. There's no, there's no sense of, of, of understanding and empathy for the person who is downtrodden who's going through difficult circumstances. Last one I'll present to you is this, the self-righteous. Keep people, keep people from Jesus and his grace. And how do they do that? Just what the Pharisees do. I told you at the beginning that they would add new restrictions, new requirements. They would make it difficult for people to believe. That's what the self-righteous do. Do you find yourselves reflected in any of these? Perhaps you write them down and you think about this week. One of the themes we see in this passage is the trap of the self-righteous. And let me tell you, all of us, all of us tend to drift in that way. Now, what is this passage all about? What's the purpose? You know, I believe that just like any good story, you might remember this from your elementary school days, that there's a main idea, that there's a big point that there's something that this passage has to say for us. I want to suggest that the purpose of this passage is wrapped up in these two words, seek and save. Seek and save. Jesus came to seek and to save. Let me give you an illustration from history that might help with this. April 9th, 1942. The baton death march began on that day. Have you heard of the Bataan death march? This is during World War II. The Japanese took 70,000, 70,000 American and Filipinos prisoner, and they marched them for 60 to 70 miles down a road. And on this road, they physically abused the people who had been taken prisoner. If, if a man was to ask for water, they would kill him dead right there on the spot. 20,000 of those people died. 20,000. The Bataan Death March. The rest were put into camps, prisoner of war camps. And they were sorted out and they were sifted out and many died beyond that. Three years later, there was a rescue mission that took place. All this death, people suffering, and the Filipino and American forces came together, just a small number of them, relatively speaking, and they rescued a remnant of those who'd been taken captive during the Bataan Death March. This is a picture, in my mind, of what the purpose of Jesus is that we see reflected in this passage. He came to seek and to save. He came on a rescue mission. And you know what he came on a rescue mission for? He came on a rescue mission for sinners. For sinners. People who were held hostage by the darkness of sin. Death and pain all around. 
And what happens? God sends Jesus in to save and seek the lost and the sinners who are kept. And, and we see this reflected. Jesus himself exposes his purpose. In Luke, which is the book we're reading through during this series, Do This in Remembrance of Me, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we see Jesus speak to his purpose through a prophecy. Jesus walks into the temple. He unrolls a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this in verses 18 and 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and I love it Jesus drops the mic he rolls up the scroll he sits down he says I tell you this passage is fulfilled today in me Jesus came to seek and to save sinners this is his purpose and we see this purpose reflected in this passage as he interacts with this sinful woman do you see it this woman she was forgiven because she displayed humility and she repented and she was devoted to Jesus in love. The key to her forgiveness was faith. Faith enabled her to take the grace that God gave to her. And we see an epilogue of her story. Now you didn't see this because we didn't read it earlier. But I want to show it to you now. This woman responded to Jesus. She is forgiven by him. And we see, perhaps, what happened to her. Because right on the heels of this story comes Luke chapter 8. Now, when the scriptures were first written, there was no chapter and verse. That was added many, many years later. So I suspect that this was originally attached to chapter 7, the content of 7 we just read. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. And I believe we see the epilogue. What happened to this woman after this? It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. These women became a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It could very well be that this woman, who had this terrible reputation, who had been mistreated and battered and broken and was full of sin, yes, this woman became a part of the ministry of Jesus. That is the kind of Savior we serve, my friends. A man who turns lives around like that. And he's still doing it today. So listen. In this passage, in my Bible, the title says, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. But let me tell you something. There isn't just one sinner in this passage. There are two. Yes, there's a sinful woman, but then there's Simon. But only one, only one came to Jesus from what we know. But that's interesting to me because the name Simon, you know what it means in Hebrew? He who has heard. He who hears. That's what the name Simon means in Hebrew. You know, I believe that Simon heard Jesus that day. He heard the parable. He actually even saw with his own two eyes. But I don't believe that Simon acted upon what he heard. 
He heard, but he didn't act. Well, let me ask you this. What about you? How about you? Do you hear this passage? Do you hear this story? Do you perceive the presentation? Much more than that, I would ask you this. What do you do? What do you do in light of who Jesus is? What's your action step? I'll suggest what your action step is. This is a, this is a classic faith practice of Lent. It's repentance. It's repentance. That's what we see this woman do. What is repentance? Repentance is two things, and it has to be two things together. The first part is this. We understand that we are wicked sinners. We understand we're sinful. We understand that we're no different than the sinful woman. So we understand that we're sinful, but on the other hand, the second thing is this. We also understand that we are deeply cherished and deeply loved through Jesus. It's two things. So repentance is your action step. Understanding that you're a sinner. Understanding that you're deeply loved and deeply cherished by God. That is repentance is. And let me tell you, you can't truly perceive how precious Christ is and the glory of the gospel until you are brokenhearted over your sin. But when you do, when you repent, you will find his grace. Lent is meant to prepare us to experience Jesus. You can experience him through repentance. I want to read you one last verse. James 1, 2. I told you Simon means he who has heard, he who hears. Listen to what James 1, 2, 1, 22 says. Do not merely listen to the word. Do not merely read the Bible. Do not merely just perceive what, what's going on in this passage. In, in so doing, deceive yourselves. Instead, do what it says. Don't be like Simon. Hear the word of God and respond like the woman do, does. And if you have never come to Christ, if you find yourself in self-righteousness, if you are a Christian, but you find yourself drifting towards the self-righteous thinking, you can come now. You can come now and you will find that. Jesus will receive you. You will find that Jesus will forgive you. You will find that Jesus will save you. My friends, may that be your truth today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this woman. <laughs> what an example she is to us of one who came to Jesus in the midst of her sin and found grace and forgiveness. I pray, God, that, that my friends gathered here today, our family in this church, I pray, God, that we would come before Jesus and, and lay ourselves at his feet knowing that we will find his mercy and his grace there for us because he is full of love. He is full of grace. Jesus is the one who came to seek and save the lost. God, thank you so much for this truth that changes us. I pray, Lord, that we would live as people who repent. Lord, may we, on one hand, recognize and understand that we're sinners, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we've all gone our own way, that there is no one who's righteous, not one. But on the other hand, to recognize, Father, that we are deeply 
loved and cherished through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we all in our hearts, even today, have the strength and the courage to repent. We thank you, God, for your love and your goodness through Christ. Because of him, we can repent and trust in your promises. We ask it in his name. And God's people said, Amen.